Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello, I'm Alex Zane, and welcome to Just The Facts, a conversation about the career and achievements of a different actor or filmmaker every week, and welcome to episode 24. It's a special episode this week because we are talking to not one, but two filmmakers about a very specific series of movies in their career. As joining me in just a moment are the incredible father and son duo of Ivan and Jason Reitman to talk all about Ghostbusters and, of course, the upcoming release of Ghostbusters Afterlife hitting cinemas in the UK on November the 18th, T-minus nine days from now. Are you excited? Is the original Ghostbusters, as it is for me, one of the cornerstones of your movie-watching childhood? Does busting make you feel good? Are you getting goosebumps at the prospect of stepping back into that world and reminding yourself that if someone asks you, if you're a god, you say yes? Well, then this is the episode for you as we get to the bottom of some of the stories and rumours that have become mythologised from the making of the original film and get a little spoiler-free insight into what Jason wanted to bring to the Ghostbusters universe with Afterlife. Bottom line, I kept my cool. As hard as it was, I only mentioned that I cried once during Afterlife, which was a slight understatement. So, and just to be able to say this is a thrill, 
We're talking all things Ghostbusters in about 30 seconds time. Just before that, don't forget, if you want all the latest news on the pod or would like to get in touch, follow us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at JTFpod. That is also where you can play each week's edition of Guess the Guest. We put up clues and you try to work out who our next guest is. It's self-explanatory, and yet I still explained it. This week, I only gave correct answers if you wrote both Ivan and Jason Reitman as your guests. The clues were clearly for both. So congratulations to Emma Ginerva Parisi, Peter Mahoney, I Am Grout, and DevSo11, who all correctly guessed Jason and Ivan Reitman. Finally... If you would like to watch this interview, as opposed to just listen, the full video will be available on our JTF Pod YouTube channel this Friday. And as always, if you do enjoy the interview, please take the time to give us a little rating or review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And you can sign up to our newsletter on our website, jtfpod.com. Right then, it's time. Are you ready for human sacrifice Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Because welcome to Just the Facts, the brilliant Ivan and Jason Reitman. Jason, Ivan, hello, how are you? <laughs> We're doing great. Excellent. How's London treating you? It's great. It's a great city. Always happy to be here. Fantastic. So there you are, sitting alongside each other, as I believe you were for much of the filmmaking process in this movie. Were you this close? Like closer. <laughs> it was literally even like closer. That our director, the arms of our director's chairs were actually touching on set. So I mean, it's amazing that you work together so closely on this. I, uh, the screening I saw, Jason, uh, you made a joke at the start about imagining having your father involved in every creative decision you're making mm-hmm. on a movie. But what was it actually like working this closely with each other, especially on a, a project that you're both so passionate about? Well, I wasn't involved in every creative decision. <laughs> I mean, if this was Jason's script and uh, Jason and Gil's script. And... I thought it was quite brilliant and just admired it. I would say that you were involved in every creative decision by the mere fact that you're the whole reason we were there. And that if you think about everything that we were doing on this movie, it's a movie that obviously leans into nostalgia. It's about going through your grandparents' basement and finding out you were a ghostbuster. And as a result, the way we approached every creative decision on this film often was, what would they have done in 1984? And and in that way, we were feeling my kind of father's presence through every choice of shot, every tonal question, every piece of music, the way props looked, fabric worked, you know, um, I, you know, I, I was constantly trying to kind of live in my father's shoes and think about how he would have made this film. And. I mean, it sounds like you had a wonderful experience, but surely there must have been, let's not say argument, but at least one disagreement. Oh, I can tell you what it was. I can tell you what it was. Yeah. My father is very pro-slime, and I am very lukewarm on slime. And I know people love slime. My daughter loves slime. And for whatever reason, the slime gene just did not hit me. And so... (laughs) Uh, afterlife is low on slime, particularly if you ask my dad. <laughs> well, let's not put that in the ad. <laughs> 
so so low on slime. Okay, but conversely, then, what for you, Jason, was the best note that Ivan gave you while you were making this, where you were just like, oh, wow. actually, Dad, thank God you're here. Uh, I mean, that happens all the time, even when we argue about it, even though, you know, and I would say this happens the most during editing where I can be rather obstinate. Is that a decent word? Yeah, very. And uh, <laughs> uh, and my father would push on a note and push on a note. And then finally I would try it and he'd be right. And that's always that tough moment, right? It's like when you're playing poker and you know, you have to fold your hand, but you don't want to fold it quite immediately. <laughs> so you pretend you're still thinking about the cards. Yeah. I hate to throw these cards away, but I, I find you're right. And <laughs> <laughs> um, when it came to um, actually uh, screening the movie, am I right in thinking, Jason, that um, Ivan actually gave you a note after the film was finished at a screening? <laughs> yeah, that's true. We were uh, watching the movie at uh, CinemaCon in Las Vegas. It was the first time that father and I watched the movie with an audience. About halfway through the movie, my father leans over to whisper something in my ear, and I wonder what he's going to say. <laughs> and he goes... You got to you got to cut that shot down. <laughs> but we did. He was right. We went back into editing and uh, and we trimmed some uh, time out of uh, the first reel. So that's great. I, I thought I, to me when I heard that for the first time, I was like, "Well, that's not very useful because we finished the movie. This is the final cut." That that's the thing with modern filmmaking. Yeah, it's never over until it's over. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably do some changes right after this podcast. And <laughs> <laughs> um, to look back, then Ivan, if if you now, as yourself, could sit next to the thirty-something Ivan Reitman on the set of the original Ghostbusters, are there any notes that you'd give yourself with the benefit of hindsight? Yes, <laughs> yes. But uh, one of the things I learned on this film uh, was to trust in the kind of the naturalistic truth of, of various moments and scenes. And I think there's always been, um, I've always had a kind of an entertainer's kind of point of view and as a director. And I was always pushing for how to make something funnier and funnier or improving a, a joke. And I was working with actors with extraordinary improvisational skills that could actually do those kinds of things and without even thinking about it, that would just happen. And really my job was to sort of try to keep them on a more focused point of view towards the story that we had been building uh, scene by scene. And um, um, what I saw with Jason was a combination of meticulousness uh, that I really admired um, and his focus and being more relaxed about a moment that went by without a gag or a laugh and that he was he was able to build on the emotionality of the story which I think plays very well in this version of it yeah it really does it really does um uh, we'll, we'll get on to some of the moments um that we can talk about spoiler free, of course. Um, but Jason, you mentioned from day one with this film that uh, it was going to be a love letter to the original Ghostbusters movie. And, and I'm right in thinking you actually created a Ghostbusters advisory board to help get it right. And um, first of all, who do you put on a Ghostbusters advisory board? Uh, it was a mixture of people who had worked on the original. So we're talking about 
obviously my father's there, but, you know, Annie Potts was there, uh, you know, the visual su- uh, effects supervisor, John Bruno was there. Uh, we had uh, Joe Medchuk, uh, Shelly Khan, who uh, edited the film. So people who were involved in the crafting the original, uh, because what we were always trying to do is really understood what it was like to make that film, you know, uh, not unlike when Gus Van Sant recreated Psycho shot for <laughs> shot. We wanted to know, OK, what did it actually feel like to make Ghostbusters? Why was the camera placed there? Why did the animatronic move that way? How did you get the dry ice to curl in in in, in that way, you know, uh, what were you using to blow wind to get their hair to move, you know, that way? What made Slimer's skin move, you know, in a certain way? All these things, or, or even in an orchestra, you know, uh, when you think about the kind of Gozerian tones that play, the big orchestral tones that play when in, in Gozer's presence, what is it that gives it that Elmer Bernstein raspiness in the low ends? Is it a question of where the mics are? Is it a question of using one instrument over another? We were dissecting this original film like archaeologists and we were very lucky that many of the craftspeople who worked on the original made themselves available to us and i think the um what i always felt on the original film was um whatever i may have done as the director of the film really uh, i had extraordinary craftspeople and a, a brilliant um at their own thing, and they contributed so much that uh, I remember just re- the movie got rewritten because of suggestions that were made mm-hmm. by by the production designer, by Sigourney Weaver, by various people in the making of this, and uh, it was so much fun in terms of some of the accidental issues that came up um, in the development of it and the shooting of it, and. Based on uh, all the conversations you had, do you think you now have what you could call the definitive answer to what makes a Ghostbusters movie a Ghostbusters movie? (laughs) Good luck. Yeah, I mean, look, we really wanted to nail grandma's recipe. You know your grandmother's recipe when you taste it, and we wanted this to feel like a Ghostbusters film throughout. And, And honestly, that's been the loveliest part about screening this movie at Comic-Con. And now we just, you know, we just screened it uh, uh, in Mexico or it was screened in Italy. And it feels as though Ghostbusters fans are embracing this movie. We wanted it to feel like Christmas morning. And you open it up and there's the PK meter. There's the proton pack. There's Ecto-1. Everything you loved about the original. And uh, when we watch it with audiences, particularly Ghostbusters fans, you can feel uh, it's like that moment anomaly when the guy's in the phone booth and opens up that little cigar box and inside are all his toys from his childhood. Like that's the moment we wanted to give people. Well, let's talk about that because I saw the movie for the first time yesterday, uh, but for, I'll do mine in a moment. But for, for you, Jason, what was the, the piece of kit that you had on set or the one moment that you shot that was a nod to the original that gave you goosebumps that you were like, Wow. This happens so many times, it's very hard to nail down to one. Uh, But I'm going to bring up something I brought up earlier, which really was thrilling. Uh, Dry ice. (laughs) Dry ice seems like the simplest thing. But when you watch it curl out of that chimney and roll across the floor, when you watch it roll down the, uh, the steps of the Temple of Gozer, there's something alive about it. 
it's different than any other smoke. It's different than CG smoke. And it was moments like that or standing in front of the terror dog, the puppet terror dog, mm -hmm. where you realize that even though we've made all these advances, advances in CG technology, there's nothing quite like being on set and watching techniques that have been around since the, the history of cinema. I mean, I, I will say the, uh, it's at the start, the dry ice at the start when it appears, and I don't think that's a spoiler, I certainly hope it's not, when it does come down the stairs and into the, the living room, let's yeah. say. Um, I actually, I had to try and work out if that was CG or not, because it is so perfect, the, right. the front wave of that dry ice. Yeah. It's incredible. No, no, we we <laughs> we all loved it so much that we wanted to play around in it. But then we had to be told that you can suffocate in dry ice because <laughs> for whatever reason, I'm not sure if it's because of the weight of it, but there's there's not enough oxygen inside. So the kids wanted to lay down and play around in the dry ice and be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, Ivan, are you a fan of dry ice as much as Jason? Oh, I love it. You know, <laughs> I, I did magic shows at a point in earlier in my career on uh, in the theater. And so the, that was a technique we use a lot and um, to create a kind of mood. Yeah, so I would say yes. And I just love the magic of it. Lit properly in a theater in front of your eyes. And wind, my father brought up wind all the time. Wind is intricate. Wind is, is, is crucial for a Ghostbusters film. It's the presence of a ghost is told through wind. If you think about the original film, anytime someone's about to have a supernatural moment, you see their hair start to blow. You see their clothes start to move. And my dad said really early on, if you want a note that my father gave me is make sure you always have wind. So we had a truck with every fan in the day, whether it was a leaf blower or a six foot ritter, we had everything you can get that moves air and the, and the, the, the special effects guys who operated them had to learn to be puppeteers because you can't just point a fan at something. You got to learn to think of the fan as a puppet and that you're moving the air moving the leaves, moving the clothes, bringing it up on somebody so their hair starts to come, starts to move at the right, the perfect moment. Yeah. It's, it's the creature that you can't see, but right. can feel in the film because how it's affecting the characters that you can see. Um, I'll just, I'll do mine very quickly. Uh, the Ecto-1 siren. Uh, when I heard that, and apologies to everyone who was in the Sony screening room yesterday, that was me crying. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it, it had uh, such a pronounced emotional effect on me hearing the Ecto-1 siren again. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. It got a cheer at Comic-Con that made me happy. Uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the sounds that it's built on is a uh, cat screaming. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. I've never cried at a cat screaming before. So <laughs> whatever filters it was put through Just changed it. <laughs> so, I mean, famously, Ivan, uh, to finish the original Ghostbusters, you were really up against it for the summer 1984 release. Yeah. Um, coming at this movie, not only as a producer, but as a father, would you say this has been more or less stressful as a movie-making journey? I think more stressful. I mean, because of the um, because of this disease that was affecting the entire world mm. and was affecting a movie going in in particular, all all large group experiences, and we always felt and uh, that this movie should be played in the cinemas 
the I mean, uh, the idea of telling a great Ghostbuster story in the dark in front of hundreds of people is, I think, just more thrilling than even a very good movie just playing on a small screen when you're watching it alone. It's meant to be a group experience, I think. Both the comedy and the scary parts of it uh, really are enhanced by seeing it with a lot of other people. And um, I was terrified that we would not be able to, uh, you know, we still don't know quite where, what's happening to the cinemas of the world. And um, we're hoping this that people can be able to come out. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In in terms of that, I guess, extra time that was provided due to those... Uh, unforeseen circumstances of the pandemic was that a help or a, a hindrance to you jason being provided suddenly with you've got your movie and it's finished and then you've got this time to potentially i guess fiddle around with it was that useful or did you just want to get it out there i i mean i always wanted this movie to play as soon as possible and from the moment i had the idea uh, uh and look it's been a it's been an incredibly tragic couple of years and i you know my father and i've been uh, very lucky. Uh, we've been very fortunate. Uh, people have, uh, have lost way too much. Um, as, as storytellers, we had a very rare opportunity with this film, which was to look at it with fresh eyes. This is something that normally you get to do as a writer and you put down a script and six months later, pick up the script and read it and see what you really feel about it. A movie, you were normally in such a race for the deadline that you never give it that kind of, you're never given that, that point of view. So to be able to put down the movie for a few months and then watch it again, like mm -hmm. a screenwriter, 
was remarkable. And that led to all kinds of great ideas. Well, I mean, let, let's talk about the actual, the story itself. And um, I have no doubt that over the years, Sony have received a ludicrous amount of pictures uh, for Ghostbusters movies with a group of guys in a firehouse in New York. I think you've mentioned before that, that they greenlit uh, your movie after reading a first draft of the script with almost no revisions. What do you think it was about your script that made Sony want to move on it so quickly? It was really good. <laughs> it was really, really good. It was, from the very first draft, it, it, it had that wonderful combination of, you could understand the scary parts of it. You could laugh at the humorous parts of it. But what was undeniable was the emotional weight of it through the through the storytelling and everyone who read it um got that right away and they literally got on board in a couple of weeks after reading that and it's kind of an inspired decision though uh moving it to small town america this town of somerville it gives the movie for me at least this wonderful timeless quality in the sense that although it's set in 2021 it could quite easily, bar a few little bits and pieces, be the 1980s. Was that part of the reason for choosing the setting? What what made you want to move the action to a rural location? Uh, you know, clearly I was looking for my own way into this universe and, and didn't find it until I thought of a 12-year-old girl with a proton pack in a field. And through her, really saw myself, you know, uh, someone uh, rediscovering their history, picking up their legacy, and it's not an accident that I am the son of a Ghostbuster. And this is a movie about grandchildren of Ghostbusters. Uh, and putting it into a new location felt like an opportunity to make it my own, but also give Ghostbusters a journey back to New York City. And uh, there's something about finding the equipment rotting uh, and watching it be cleaned up put back into operation uh, so that we can bring certain parts of this mythology that began in 84 to a close and then set other things off for the future. Visually as well, like the farm, the farmhouse. I think it was at Comic-Con in New York. I hope I'm right that Finn Wolfhard, who's great in the movie, said that you planted a whole barley field in the winter. Yeah. Ecto wanted to drive through. Is that right? Yeah, uh, you know, we we found the farmland in the dead of winter of Alberta, which is a stunning province, but it is freezing cold <laughs> in January. And we looked at this hill and we imagined this house sitting on top of it. And we knew that we wanted to do these this sequence of Trevor, you know, basically wheat drifting a field that was meant to feel like a snowboarding video. Except instead of a snowboard cutting through the snows, Ecto-1 cutting through the wheat. And, and so we planted all this barley, we planted some corn, and we were like farmers. We were like, you know, checking the rain forecasts and then hoping we were getting enough sun and bringing in more water when there wasn't enough. And, and, and measuring the height of the barley every week and, and, and high-fiving on our progress when, <laughs> when the yield was up. By the way, by the way, when we wrapped shooting... We harvested the barley. We oh made gosh. it yield. We, that's the one thing so far that Ghostbusters' afterlife has made money on. We <laughs> made money on our crop. But one of the greatest things was we, we did this driving sequence, or, you know, Ecto-1, 
And we rebuilt Ecto-1 with a Corvette engine so the thing could haul ass. And it goes tearing through this barley field for about an hour. And when we get back, everyone's starting to go, what's that smell? And the engine had pulled in so much raw barley that it was cooking the barley inside <laughs> under the hood. And it smelled like, you know, we were like baking bread or something. Oh, uh, I love the fact you made money on the, on your crop. I think I, I think I remember Christopher Nolan did the same thing with Interstellar. He had a, a fields of a crop that he then sold, and that was the first profit Interstellar turned as well. I know. What I wanted to do and we couldn't was uh, I wanted to – Harvest the corn and make popcorn so that you could have popcorn from the set of Ghostbusters. But the corn that we used was the corn that is used as feed, not the corn that could be turned into popcorn. I was really bummed out by that. (laughs) So much about the original Ghostbusters and the making of it has been kind of mythologized. Um, And Ivan, you'll be able to confirm this or not, but I remember Dan Aykroyd saying that around 80% of the dialogue on the original Ghostbusters was improv not true. is that about no, not true not true <laughs> i've seen the script i've seen i've seen the script and i've seen the uh the script supervisor's notes so i know where the improvs were i mean there was a lot of improv but it was focused in very particular areas that um helped just improve the scene as it was originally written okay I, to say 80 percent was also is a disservice to Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis's brilliance at writing dialogue. And uh, there's exceptional dialogue in that script. I mean, with your, with your own film, with Ghostbusters Afterlife, obviously you've got cast members who are no strangers to improvising. Um, yeah. How much of the dialogue in your film would you say was, uh, was ad-libbed? About 80%, I think. <laughs> to put a number on it. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, uh, no, look. Uh, a, we're working with Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is one of the great comedic improvisers. He's one of the writers on Ant-Man. He absolutely wrote lines and, and, and came up with stuff on the spot. He and Carrie Coon have a lovely moment where it's this, this flirtation in the farmhouse after they first meet. And they just came up with that those beats, whole cloth right in front of me. And it, it was absolutely wonderful. And they made Gil and I look like better writers. And of course, there's Bill Murray. This is the great Bill Murray, who I had always heard of these moments in which he throws an idea out there and all of a sudden something becomes iconic. And, and that happened. I remember we were watching Monitor and Bill said something. And my father and I looked into each other and we just knew. It's like, oh, that's an iconic line. And we just watched it be born. You mentioned something earlier, Jason. You uh, used um, archaeological uh, as a description. And I think you've said that before in terms of this movie was um, archaeological for you in many ways. I think you even approached Sony about obtaining original dailies uh, yes. from the, fir- from the yes. first film from a mine. <laughs> Do you want to explain the mines? <laughs> well, we've always heard about the salt mines in where's it? Kansas. Kansas, thank you, uh, were the original studios went to store their negatives um, for protection against bad things. And apparently there was, there's some reason that that's, those mines in Kansas are, are good for that. And, uh, and in fact, that's where our negatives were stored. And they were in great condition. I think that's the thing that astonished me the most was 
I had always heard these stories that film studios had all their original dailies hiding somewhere in a mine. And I presumed that they tossed these boxes and never to be seen again. (laughs) And the truth is we asked for them. They were able to locate them almost immediately. We zeroed in on the scenes we wanted and, uh, and we got everything from original dailies to 65 millimeter cloud tank footage that uh, we used for those, you know, Gozerian clouds. (laughs) And, and we even found a piece of footage that truly personally was lost to history. And those were the two takes that I originally was supposed to appear in Ghostbusters 84. (laughs) I was cut out for reasons that one could possibly never understand. (laughs) And however, I, we scanned them and put them into Ghostbusters afterlife, thus restoring my six-year-old performance (laughs) back to where it belongs. (laughs) Was that the real reason for making this movie? <laughs> there was only one reason to make this movie. My acting career. But Brownstone Boy number two made an appearance in Ghostbusters 1. Uh, um, I, I love the tagline for the movie. I uncover the past, protect the future. Is, is that in some way a, a, a metaphor for for the way you want this movie to to exist in a way of kind of protecting the future of Ghostbusters as well as your father's legacy? I, I see it as this unique mythology that is carried by everyone who's ever watched a Ghostbusters movie. You know, this is the, the one film I've ever made that never belonged to me. Hmm. It always belonged to everybody else. And... As the director, I was given the opportunity to be a momentary steward of Ghostbusters. All I wanted to do was make a movie that would make my father proud, that make my daughter proud, that make the Ramis family proud, and and give people one more ride in Ecto-1, and possibly set a foundation so that more Ghostbusters movies can happen. I mean, you, you, you said... I think um, I think it was at a Comic Con. You talked about this idea of um, setting the table for potentially some of your favorite directors to to take on a Ghostbusters movie as mm. a complete sort of blank canvas exercise, a fairy tale situation. Here we go. Are there? <laughs> yeah. Are there people out there, directors, filmmakers, who you would like to see taking on a Ghostbusters film? I mean, countless, countless filmmakers who I would love to see in this universe. Uh, I mean, I, I was literally, I was, I was in Mexico yesterday for the Morelia Film Festival, watching the movie uh, uh, with an all Mexican audience. And I was asked, you know, who would you want to direct Ghostbusters film? And, you know, it's like, well, Del Toro, how about him? I mean, that would be an extraordinary Ghostbusters film. Uh, I can think of countless filmmakers and it's, it's a wonderful mythology. Every culture has their relationship with supernatural and the unknown. And I think we'd both love to see those movies. Like you said, this is the first movie, I guess, you you haven't owned because you're you're an indie filmmaker at heart, or at least until now, this is your first franchise movie. Has the experience whet your appetite for more films of this scale? Could you see yourself directing a, a comic book adaptation? There's a few of those around at the moment. I love this mythology and I would love to continue working within it. Uh, I'd also love to continue telling personal stories. 
What really thrilled me about making Ghostbusters Afterlife was being able to do a movie of this kind of scale that had this potential entertainment value that simultaneously was a personal story like all my other films. And Ivan, for you watching your son direct a Ghostbusters movie, do you see any parallels between his experience of making this film and your experience of making the original? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he had to solve the same kinds of problems that we tried to solve, you know, back in the early 80s. And it's it was really quite lovely to, because I got to sit back a lot and <laughs> to just watch Jason work the puzzle on <laughs> and, um, and find his own special way. I mean, I, I love that you talk about your own uh, identifiable uh, films because in many ways, yes, my historical 84 movie is a big part of this, but really it's his movies as well. The, the having the family at the center, having a strong uh, mother who is a very important character of this, uh, the young the young women, uh, you know, Phoebe, who plays such an extraordinary role here, uh, really is is a character out of a Jason Reitman movie and really acquits herself in a remarkable way here and is perfect for the story. You touched on this already, but just to go back to it, because like you say, the world of cinema has been in a strange place recently. What do you make of the changing viewing habits of people and the fact that people are watching movies at home so much more now and how important do you think it is that cinema not survives because it will survive but that people still understand the importance of visiting the cinema to watch a movie and have that experience we love streaming as much as anybody else and uh, i think streaming helped everybody get through the pandemic but what we miss the most what we love is going to the movies is being inside a movie theater, buying the popcorn, watching the trailers, and seeing a film on a giant screen with incredible sound with a group of strangers and experiencing that thing that you can only get at the movies, where you laugh together and you cry together and you jump together and you scream together. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of movie we wanted to make with Ghostbusters, a film that could be seen on the big screen with the best sound uh, amongst your community. Uh, it's the kind of thing that makes you feel closer to people you've never even met before. And that first time that you did watch it together, I imagine, with an audience um, of fans, what was that like, actually, seeing the reaction to your film for the first time? Was, what a thrill. It's overwhelming. At Comic-Con was one of the great nights of my life. Mine too. I, the, I mean, I, the, I can't wait to see it with a crowd. I saw it with about seven people who I disturbed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I <didn't> deserved it. <laughs> with my giant manly tears well, um, that we're going to get to do this with you tonight i cannot wait it's going to yeah. be great yeah i'm looking forward to seeing you in literally three hours time in person yeah um i think that's about it for the moment i will say one more, one more question for you ivan can you give uh, us any updates on the twins movie is something is it happening is it going on i have my fingers crossed i do too that would be lovely um both of you, congratulations on the film. Um, I don't think you, I need to say anymore. You know, I cried, I laughed, I had the time of my life. I was 
the seven-year-old me all over again, oh. um, being terrified by that freaking library ghost. Um, <laughs> before I actually saw the movie, I had the big um, uh, annual that you, you could get, and I don't know how much input you had into that, Ivan, but I think it was a very cruel thing to open that book on a double-page spread of the <laughs> library ghost post-transformation, which was <laughs> an amazing image, though. Yeah. An amazing image. But when you don't know it's coming and you've just bought a Ghostbusters annual and you open up that, wow, <laughs> that's going to stay with you. Guys, um, thank you so much for your time and I'll see you this evening. Thank see you tonight. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. <laughs>